Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. I think for a lot of new people who come to the show, Neil, they've heard of you, but your story when you were down and out is one of the most gifted, unbelievable stories I've ever heard. Would you relate that to us again, just what you went through, the homelessness, and then how the Conversations with God book came about? Sure, I'd be happy to, George. It it began uh, with an accident. I had an automobile accident in which I broke my neck. Uh, An elderly gentleman turned in front of me in his car and and smashed into me. He he misjudged uh, how far away I was from him, and he wanted to make a left turn, and he made a left turn right in front of me. And and uh, we had a terrible crash, and I I broke my neck in the accident. Oh jeez! And 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 you know when I, well, it's amazing because the doctor said. And by the way, it wasn't a hairline fracture. We're talking about a three quarter inch avulsion fracture of the seventh cervical vertebrae posteriorly. I remember the exact wording uh, on the report, and uh, that's 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 a fracture in your neck big enough to put a pencil through. So the doctor looked at me when it was all over, and they had me braced up and, and my neck, you know, uh, 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 taken care of. They, the doctor looked at me, and he said, you know, I can't even imagine why you're still alive. Most people who suffer a broken neck, snapped as bad as yours was, die instantly, oh. uh, or at, least, at the very least they're, they're, they're uh, you know, paralyzed. They have some, but you, I didn't have either uh, outcome. But uh, I did have a problem. I had to wear a neck brace for a year and a half uh, because it, the doc said, look, it, it, think, of a, think of a bowling ball on the head of a pin. That's about what's going on right now. Your neck can't support your head. So you, I want you to wear, you got to wear this uh, Philadelphia collar. It's a therapeutic device, and you can't take it off, not even to sleep, not even to shower. You will keep it on. You hear my words. You said you'll keep this thing on 24 hours a day until I tell you you can take it off. It was a year and a half later. Well, I was out of work. I couldn't get a job anywhere. No one would hire me. I'd walk in and try to get a job, and they would look at me with this brace on my neck and say, you know, you're, you're, you're a walking insurance claim, so we can't we can't hire you. So I couldn't get a job even as a stock boy at a local, uh, at a local grocery store. I mean, it was nothing I could do. And I, pretty soon I ran out of money, and I wound up... Uh, uh, losing my apartment, losing the place I was living in. I had already lost my relationship, not because of the accident. That was a separate incident. Mm-hmm. So now I was without uh, a home, without a place to live, and I wound up living on the street, on the oh, sidewalk. Uh, and, and that didn't go on for a couple of bad weeks or a couple of rough months. I was out there uh, on the street as a street person for a year, two weeks shy of one I year. I mean, were you one of those guys holding the sign saying, you know, please feed me and things like that? Yeah, I didn't have a sign like that, but I did. I did walk the streets for the better part of a year, and I would simply walk up to people and ask them. I learned how to just, just simply say, "Look, I'm a little down, uh, down and out on my luck. Is there anything you could offer me? You know, even a few coins, actually a couple of quarters. If I got two quarters from everybody that I asked today, I could get a, a I could get a meal into my stomach because I would wake up in the morning and not have a nickel to my name. I mean. And it was an interesting way to live. So yeah, I didn't, I didn't have a, didn't have a sign, but I, I did, I did, I didn't smell so good. Mm-hmm. My hair was down to the middle of my back. Obviously, I couldn't afford a haircut. Uh, there was no place I could shower. I, I went to a campground, a local campground, and they did have a public shower there, but it cost like fifty cents or whatever it was, and that's big money when you have nothing. So, that's right. That's right. So you know, there I was, and 
And, and then finally, I got a job at a local radio station. Actually, uh, I, I had been a talk show host, and I had been on the radio for years. Uh, but uh, <laughs> as luck would have it, in the same year that I had this accident, the station that I was on, didn't, I guess, doesn't speak very highly of my show, but the station went bankrupt. Oh, jeez. It was a local radio station, so I lost my job. Now, here I am, no job, no house, no place to live, no income. And, you know, and I'm, and I, but I finally did get a job at a different little radio station. I walked in. They remembered me from the place I had worked before. And they said, oh, you're still around? Yeah. I said, yeah. So they gave me a weekend gig. It wasn't a big gig, but they needed a weekend fill-in guy. So I, I had a weekend gig. And I was thinking, like, in those days, this is, we're talking about 25 years, 30 years ago. But I, so I was thinking, like, 50 bucks a weekend, 200 bucks a month. That was a lot then. I was going to say, it's a little bit more than it sounds like, yeah. because that, that's you know, 25, 30 years ago. Nevertheless, it wasn't exactly a really sweet salary, but I was able to sneak by, and I got a little tiny little one-bedroom uh, a place to live in. And then uh, that's, that's when I had my experience, however, because you know I was <laughs> waking up in the middle of the night thinking, now, wait a minute, let me see if I get this straight. I'm, I'm 50 years old. Well, I was 49 to be exact, but I'll be 50 in a couple of months. And this is how it is with me. This is this is what's going on. I, I got a weekend job, just enough to just enough to pay the rent and put some groceries on the shelf. I did. Oh, I should I should. You're laughing. You're not going to believe this, George. But at the same time, I had my car stolen. Oh God! I, I am not kidding. It was a triple oh. whammy. Yeah, I walked outside, you know, and my car was gone. And I went to the police, and I said, "Hey, you know," and they laughed at me. They said, "Well, when was the last time you saw it?" I said, "Well, I don't, last night when I parked it." And they said, "Oh man, by that that was like eight hours ago. By now, the thing's been parted out. You can forget oh, about that. Gosh. It's gone." So I didn't have. I was on foot, and I didn't have. And we didn't have Uber in those days. No, no, no they, <laughs> they sure didn't. Not that I could have afforded it. But they didn't have it, so now here I am, and I'm 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 sitting in my little one room flat, and and I'm I'm, I'm just really angry. I'm, I'm, I'm it's two thirty or three thirty in the morning. I'm furious, and I wake up and I start writing on a yellow legal pad a really angry letter to God. Okay, okay, well, you know enough, enough. What does it take to make life work? What have I done to deserve a life? of such continuing struggle, one thing after the other. Uh, you know, tell me the rules. I remember writing, these are the exact words I wrote. I was writing so deep in, on the yellow legal pad, you could have read it five or six pages deep just from the impression on the page, on the tablet. I'm writing, okay, tell me the rules. What are the rules? How does the game go? Because, and by the way, after you give me the rules, don't change them. Because my experience is that everything was changing mm-hmm. you know, from minute to minute. And so I'm, I'm just writing. I don't even know who I'm writing to. I'm just writing this thing. I, I, I had this idea. I'm going to write a letter to God. Uh, but, you know, it was just a really a form of self-therapy. I, I experienced it as just taking journal, you know, journaling in my own little notebook on my yellow legal pad there. But that's when I heard a voice. I actually heard a, a physical voice over my right shoulder. I turned around. There was no one there, of course. And I thought, oh, this is great. And this wasn't that little voice in the head, was it? No, no. I, I honestly, George, I honestly thought I heard a voice in the room. Obviously, there wasn't anybody in the room, but I right, thought right. that I heard a voice in the room. It was every, 
every everything in my life convinced me there was a voice there. And the voice simply said, very kindly, Neil, do you really want answers to all of these questions? Or are you just venting? And I remember laughing. I was guffawing. I was like, I said, yeah, you think? I said, yeah, I'm venting. But if you'd like, if you have some answers, I'd sure as hell like to know what they are. And and uh, then came back to me. And now it, the voice kind of went inside my head. It, it, it took the form of thoughts in my mind. And the very next communication was, you are sure as hell. Well, wouldn't you rather be sure as heaven? And I said, uh, okay, what's that supposed to mean? And then I began having this little two-way conversation with this voice in my mind. And I began taking notes. I mean, I actually wrote down what I was hearing in my head. And I wrote down what I was asking as well. I began asking these same questions. What does it take to make life work and what's going on? And I began getting answers. And before I knew it, George, I was involved in a question-answer experience on that yellow legal pad. Question-answer, question-answer, question-answer. That's that's something. And and when you, you had enough, what made you decide to put it into book form? I was invited to, in the conversation itself, it said, you will make of this one day a book. And I thought, yeah, yeah, of course. But then I thought, ah, now I gotcha. Now I gotcha. Because that was the one thing that, that I was, I want to say, receiving, to use, use that phrase. It was the one piece of information that was coming to me that was measurable. It was a measurable outcome. Everything else, you know, was theoretical, conceptual in nature. Could be, could not be. Who would know? Who would know? But here was a statement that was measurable. You will make of this one day a book, and it said, and you and it will be read, accessed by many people. And I thought, oh, we'll see about that. No one's gonna, no one's gonna publish this. So in fact, I took my handwritten notes, had them xeroxed, and sent off to a publisher. And you know, I could imagine. You know, I, I was laughing as I did it because I could just imagine the guy going out to the workroom floor and saying to his editors. Hold the presses. I got a guy here who's talking to God. <laughs> and we're going to publish his book. Yeah. You know, but I, I knew it wasn't going to happen. There wasn't a chance in the world. Was that Hotter Stoughton? No, no. It was Hampton Rhodes. Hampton Rhodes did it. Okay. Yeah, small little, uh, at that time, a small little uh, publishing house on the East Coast in Virginia. A guy did named Robert think, Friedman. And, you, and, but you know what? If the phone didn't ring, whatever it was, a week and a half or two weeks later, and he says, this, hey, this is Bob Friedman with Hampton Roads Publishing. You sent us your manuscript. I said, well, yeah, I don't really think of it as a manuscript. I did send you my, my notes. He said, we want to put this thing out. I said, you're kidding me. Wow. He said, no, no. We, we, he said, it's fascinating. And and uh, at the very least, it's going, to, it's going to be an interesting book. And he said, we just, you know, we're just kind of leery about the title you put on it, Conversations with God. You know, it's going to push a lot of people away. We think it's a pushback. Can you give it a different title? And I said, you know, Mr. Friedman, no. We're either going to call it exactly how I experienced it, or we're not going to publish the book. And he said, well, okay, we'll see, we'll see what happens. And they put the book out. You know, within five weeks, it was on a New York Times bestseller. How did that happen, by the way? I mean, was there a major promotion behind it? Did you go on a book tour? What happened? He sent the book to 
every New Thought Church. He had a list of New Thought Churches. His publishing house had, had a list of New Thought Churches uh, in the country. And so he sent one copy to the pastor of every one of those churches and invited them to put it on the book table. And you know, after, after service, he'd sometimes go to the fellowship hall, mingle with some of the people in the mm-hmm. congregation, maybe take a little browsing moment at the book table. And my book was out there, Conversations with God. And they couldn't keep them in stock. It was flying off the table. My gosh. So, they, so they were ordering more copies and ordering more copies. And when he saw what was happening, at the, uh, he couldn't keep it in stock. He had to get a reprint. And so when he saw what was happening, he, he, then he began to really promote it in other ways, sent copies to the major newspapers, the L.A. Times, the San Francisco Chronicle, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, you know, people became aware of it very quickly. And it became an instant, instant bestseller. And it is you know, unbelievable that it was on the bestseller list for uh, about 135 weeks, yeah, which that, that's is very, the, very... That's unheard of. It was unheard of for a nonfiction book. Fiction books sometimes do that, but nonfiction books, very, very unheard of. And it made what they say, you know, publishing history. You've got now 39 books out there? Yes, sir. I just just published my 39th book uh, a few months ago. With The God Solution? It's called The God Solution. And it is, in my in my mind, it's the culmination. It's not, it's not a dialogue book. It's not a, a, a part of the so-called dialogue series. There are nine dialogue books and then 30 other books that extrapolate from that, that expand on the message and that explore more deeply its concepts. And The God Solution is, I consider, probably my last book. I'm, you know, 39 is enough, but it's the culmination, really. It just takes everything that has been said in that dialogue and brings it to a place where the average person can pick it up and go, oh, I get it. I see what's going on. This is the God solution. That is, this is the solution to the problems that humanity is and has been facing for a very long time. Does it seem to you, Neil, that everything is topsy-turvy? I mean, everything just seems to be all screwed up. We are in an upside-down world right now in, in many, many, many ways. And and it's, it's there's a reason for it, I think. But but yes, of course, everything is is all screwed up to put it mildly, and we don't seem to know how to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. That's that's what's really frustrating, uh, as I watch it from a distance, and and that's why I wrote the God Solution because the God Solution asks an interesting question, George. The book starts off with a with a series of three questions: If there really is a God, and who knows? I mean, who knows? But if there really truly is a God. Why is the world such a mess? And why has it always been? I mean, it's not just recently. In one way or another, we've had a tough time on this planet for a long, long time, for millennia, yep. for hundreds of thousands of years. So, you know, what's the point? That was my third and last question at the beginning of the book. What's the point of having a God or a belief in God when we can't seem to make life work here on the planet? What's, what's the use of it? And then the book turns around. Uh, and, and offers an answer to that question. Yeah, you're not questioning your belief in God. That's not happening to you, is it? No, no. Not, not at all. No, I'm just asking, what, how, what have we missed here? By the way, it's not just my belief in God, I should point out. Eight out of ten people have a belief in some kind of controlling power. Surveys have been taking over the past 25 years, and even in the past three or four years, 
surveys around the world, not just in Western cultures or, but but all over the all over the planet in every culture on the planet. And the surveys show essentially the same outcome: eight out of ten people believe in some kind of controlling power, but they just can't agree. We can't agree on. What's true about that controlling power? What is it? What does it want? How does it work? Can we use it in any possible way? You know, what happens if we don't do what it wants? Is you know, and uh, so we can't resolve the questions that have arisen out of our belief in that controlling power, and that's why, in my view, the world is the way it is. I believe that if we came to a a global understanding and a, a sense of agreement, at least among the larger number of us. Obviously, we're not going to get everybody to agree, but if we had uh, an agreement among the larger number of us, I believe the world could change and could resolve the problems that we are faced with. I think so, too. I, I really do. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.